morning's passage is taken from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. It's found on page 991, uh, the Bible's under your seat. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The word of the Lord. There was no way I was going to be able to convince any other woman to read that passage. (laughs) I am amazed that you didn't throw something at Shainu while she was reading it. So that means one of two things. Either I should be depressed because you are not paying attention to the scriptures, or I should rejoice gladly that you so love Jesus and his word that you are ready to obey his word no matter what it says and you have no problem with the passage that we just read, right? The passage we're looking at today, 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 15, is a hard passage, a hard passage to understand and an even harder passage to accept once you do understand it, right? This is one of those passages of the scriptures that if you're a Christian, you go, why is this in the Bible? If you're a Christian, you've sort of come to accept that people outside of the church think you're nuts to begin with, right? As you begin to explain what it is that you believe, you just have to come to this place where you go, everyone's going to think you're crazy, right? Your friends will come to you and and your neighbors or your coworkers, your family members, and, and try and walk you through some of what you believe. Time out. You actually believe that there is a God who created everything, and that includes two human beings in a garden named Adam and Eve. Yep, I believe that. And then this whole world is broken and sinful because these two ate some fruit. Yep, I believe that. And it was some kind of serpent who was talking to them and deceived them, and that's why everything in the world is bad the way that it is. Yep, that's what I believe. And then this God, who, by the way, is three gods or one God, but one in three, sent one to come to the earth, and he died for everybody so that all the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve could be saved. Yep, that's what I believe. And then, by the way, he came back to life, and he went to heaven, and he's coming back. He'll be back, like, like the Terminator, right? No accent, but yep, that's exactly what I believe. And then you, you get through all of that, and you go, okay, you're absolutely nuts. That's what everyone in our culture would think. And then on top of that, you get obscure passages like this one, that make us feel like we're even more backwards and out of touch with the rest of the world. Just so that you don't miss the difficulty of what we're talking through, let me read it for you again so that you hear it with fresh ears. This is 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. Let a woman learn with quietly and with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. At that point, you go, really, Lord, you had to throw in childbearing as if this wasn't hard enough. She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love 
and holiness with self-control. Okay, so what do you do with all that? Let me say this. For a long time, how I had approached this text, if I was ever asked about it or ever had to teach from it, was that I always did it with a bit of an apologetic tone, right? Like, I'm really sorry this is in the Bible, and I wish it wasn't in the Bible, but it is, and we're sort of stuck with it, and what are you going to do, right? It's sort of one of those passages that if you had a giant black Sharpie marker, this is one you would scribble out if you could, or you'd cut it out if you could, but we can't, we're sort of stuck with it, so let's try and talk through it. And so a bit sheepishly, a bit ashamedly, I would try and somehow defend what seems to be a primitive, outdated, somewhat chauvinistic passage. I have to tell you something. I don't feel that way anymore. It's sort of like when you're a teenager, you're convinced your parents are the dumbest people in the world, right? And then you grow up and something happens where you begin to realize they weren't so dumb. They actually had some wisdom. Something happens when you mature, when you grow up, when you realize, you know what I realize? I'm not as smart as I thought I was, and they're not as dumb as I thought they were. That just comes with growing up. And I think that's what happens when you grow up in the faith a bit too. When you grow up in the scriptures, you begin to realize, I'm not as smart as I think I am. And God's not as dumb as I'm sure that he is. In fact, maybe there's some wisdom to the things that he says. In fact, the, the, the thought that I have that this world would work so much better if I was just in charge and things went the way that I think they should go, maybe isn't all that valid and maybe there's some wisdom and beauty to his ways and to his design. And so here's what I want to say. This morning, I want to say that as difficult as this passage is to understand, and even more difficult as it is to accept, there is beauty here. Because this passage springboards off of this beautiful, wise design that God has instituted in the world. And I think God wants to grow us up a bit and mature us to help us to see we're not as smart as we think we are, and he's not as dumb as we assume him to be. He knows exactly what he's doing. So what I'm asking the Holy Spirit to do for us simply this morning is to show us the wisdom and beauty of God's design, that we would not just tolerate a passage like this one, but actually come to embrace it. All right, let's pray, ask the Holy Spirit to do that, And then we'll walk through this passage together. Pray with me. Our Lord, we come and bring you this passage and bring you our morning. And we ask you now to help us. Give us humility first so that we might actually put down our defenses and receive your word. Help us to actually engage it, to think through it. And then help us also to come to the humble place where we see you as wise and all-knowing and us as not to see that you run the world much better than we do, that you have purposes and plans that are better than ours, and that true life and joyful life is found not in rejecting, but embracing you and your will for us. Cause us to cease from, from bristling and chafing from you and your word, and to embrace life found even in your design. This will result in much good for us and glory for you, This is our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me remind you that we are in this passage because we're walking through the book of 1 Timothy. And we've been walking through this for some weeks now. And for a while we were looking at this section called Repairing the Damage. Here's a bunch of stuff that was wrong at this church. 
that Pastor Timothy has to go and fix. In this section, we're in a section of our sermon series called Restoring Beauty. And here, it's not so much damage that you've got to fix, but the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter is writing to Timothy so that he might have some wisdom that he can put in place to prevent damage. This is not just to fix things. This is how and what you need to put in place to prevent damage. This is the stuff that you need if your church is going to be a healthy church. And this week, the wisdom that the church needs if it's going to be a healthy church is that a healthy church needs men and women who complement each other well, okay? A healthy church is a church where men and women complement each other well. When I say compliment, I want you to know I'm speaking C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T, not I-M-E-N-T, right? One is, hey, you look great, you look great. That's compliment, that's not this one. This week, we're talking about compliment as in two things that fit together, right? That go well together. One thing that completes another thing, right? Like the steak, that sauce is a great compliment, that these things are good on its own, but together, they're amazing. They round each other out. They complete each other. And the scripture teaches that men and women were created by design to complement, like two puzzle pieces that come together and form a beautiful whole. So likewise, men and women were created to complement each other. In theological fancy big words, this would be the understanding of complementarianism. That's just a fancy way of saying that the scriptures teach that men and women were created equal but different. And that is very good. Let me say that again. That is the teaching that the scriptures teach that men and women were created equal, equal in every way, in worth, in identity, in standing, in value, in relationship with God, completely equal but different, and that those differences are very good that it's by design. And so what we want to do today is look at how this reality plays out in this passage, right? What, what does this look like when it's fleshed out in 1 Timothy 2? When you get to 1 Timothy 2, let me just remind you also that the context of this chapter is talking about church, public worship. So that's what he has in view when he talks about 1 Timothy 2. He's giving guidelines for what men and women of God should look like and act like when they gather in church. So this isn't a passage that has to do necessarily with women and leadership and authority in the world or in business or in government. This is what does it look like in God's family, the church. And this is what he says. Hear it again. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Okay? Before you're ready to tar and feather Paul, let's try and walk through some of what he's saying. First of all, I want you to, to hear this before we walk into some of these more closely. And that is that this passage would have been just as offensive in Paul's culture as it is in our culture, but for the exact opposite reason. Here's what I mean. A pastor named Mark Dever said this. He said this, The most widely overlooked teaching of this passage is the extraordinary fact that women were welcome in the church. This was not the case in Jewish synagogues and most centers of Roman worship. In the first century, the shocking part of this passage 
would have been that women were to learn at all, especially under the same teaching as men. Do you hear that? In the first century, this passage would have been just as gasp, shocking, but for a completely different reason, which is that in that day, women weren't allowed in the synagogue, and they weren't welcomed in the Roman temples. But here was the Christian religion not only inviting women to church, but embracing them and saying that they were to sit side by side under the teaching of God's word and learn together. Right? That doesn't answer all the questions we might have, but I do want you to hear. Unfortunately, it's largely ignored that despite all her flaws, the church and Christianity has been used throughout history to advance and elevate the status of women rather than oppressing them. So the heart of this passage in its original day was not born out of chauvinism, but rather was groundbreaking in what it permitted and allowed for women. With that in mind, hear what he's saying. He starts by saying, let a woman learn quietly. In fact, he says that again by ending the section by saying she is to remain quiet. So what does Paul teach to the women who gather for worship every Sunday, even here at Sama Road? What does Paul mean when he says, let a woman learn quietly, she is to remain quiet? Let's start with what he doesn't mean. What he doesn't mean is that he's giving some kind of gag order so that none of the women in the church could ever open their mouth. This was not setting some kind of policy of women in the church are to be seen but not heard. No one is ever to speak if you are a woman in the church. We know that because of other passages of scripture. For you, as you study scripture, even on your own, one important rule is to let scripture help you understand and interpret other scripture. That's how we study. We let one part of the Bible help us understand how another part of the Bible. And we know that Paul is not calling for absolute silence because of other parts of the Bible. For example, in some of his own letters, as he's writing to a young church in Corinth, he gives guidelines for how people are to participate in worship. And there he's addressing both men and women with full expectation that they're both going to sing in service. They're both going to pray out loud in service. He even guide, gives guidelines of the gift of prophecy to both men and women with the expectation that both men and women may have this gift and share it publicly with the church. So the issue here is not about can they open their mouths or not. And we know that also because of what comes earlier just in this chapter itself. If you have a Bible open in 1 Timothy 2, I want to tell you in verse 2, just a few verses up, he uses the same word quiet. In fact, this is what Dennis preached on last week about, listen, God wants us to pray so that we can lead peaceful and quiet lives. Same word, quiet. And yet no one's going to jump up and go, you see that? Paul wants all Christians to be mute throughout their whole life. He never wants us to talk. No, we know that's ridiculous. We know the passage is not calling for absolute silence. We know when he says, listen, I want all Christians to live peaceful and quiet lives. This is not about the opening of the mouth. This is about the posture of the heart. And he's saying, look, if you're a Christian, your heart is not going to be contentious and quarrelsome. That's what was going on in Ephesus. Your heart is to be yielded, serene, submitted, quiet. And in this passage, he's saying that same kind of quiet posture that you would find in the heart of all Christians should be expressed by Christian women in service through a quietness, through a yielding, through a submissiveness, through a surrender. That is that Christian women in 
corporate worship should support and respect and honor the leadership of the men that God has placed as overseers or elders or pastors over the church. That rather than supplanting that authority, they express a quiet spirit by supporting that authority. Right? And again, even at the word authority, we tend to chafe. We tend to bristle at that word. Are you really saying that God has placed folks in authority over me? And I'm saying that's the way God has created everything in the world. Children are under the authority of their parents. Right? Elders have authority over youth. The government has authority over its citizens. The elders or pastors have authority over the church. And so likewise, here, as women, godly Christian women, gather in public worship, he's saying there should be a quietness about your spirit, a yielding. This is not a question of, of the opening of your mouth, but that when you open your mouth, it expresses the inner posture of your heart, which is quiet and submitted and yielding and surrendered to God's will and God's design. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, and then he goes on to say, I do not permit a woman to teach. Okay, what does he mean there? I do not permit a woman to teach. Again, let's start with what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that he is forbidding here all kinds of teaching or every kind of teaching, that there is no occasion in which a woman would teach. How do we know that? We're going to allow scripture to interpret scripture. And in other parts of the Bible, we know that women are not just allowed to teach, but exhorted to teach, instructed to teach, commanded to teach. In Titus 2, another passage that Paul himself, the same guy who's writing this, writes, telling older women to instruct younger women, to teach them what it means to be godly women. So that's, that's a call, an exhortation. We know mothers are instructed, commanded to teach their children. In fact, the person that Paul is writing to, Timothy, in other parts we know that he received his faith not from the instruction of dad, but from the instruction of his mom and his grandmom. In fact, Paul names them to say, these two women were the ones who taught you the faith, were instrumental in making you who you are. We even know of informal teaching done by couples together. In the book of Acts, we hear of this couple, Priscilla, her name comes first even, and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila gathered together and often taught in their homes. They called this great preacher named Apollos into their home and together instructed him. Right? It's this picture that should be a model for all Christian couples, even who serve the Lord and in the ministry, of this idea of them serving the Lord together. I, I can tell you, for example, for Shainu and I, you're never going to see Shainu here as a pastor of our church. You're never going to see her preach a sermon. And yet the fingerprint of her life is all over any and every ministry that I do. And in fact, in informal settings, the only reason we are helpful to anyone in counseling or empathy is because Shainu is there. In fact, I've had people beg me, make sure Shainu's there if I'm coming over, right? Because she is just far more gifted at that than I am far more empathetic, far more sympathetic, far more wise in that whole world in informal settings, instructing, counseling, teaching. And these are God-honoring, beautiful ways. And so the text is not saying that there's no occasion for a woman to teach. 
So then what is Paul prohibiting? What is he restricting when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach? To understand it, you've got to understand what comes directly afterwards, what follows. And when you couple them together, you get what Paul specifically has in mind. Because what comes next is, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And so the kind of teaching that Paul has in mind that is not permitted for a woman is authoritative teaching. It's the kind of teaching that is over a man or exercises authority over a man. So what is that? Let's flesh that out for a second. In the very next chapter, in chapter 3, Paul is going to start talking about the elders or pastors of the church. And one of the qualifications he's going to give is that they must be able to teach. And so the context between chapter 2 and 3 is saying, look, there's a kind of teaching that comes authoritatively from the office of pastor or elder, and that is the kind of teaching I do not permit a woman to do. Or let me say it another way. In chapter 5, if you go there, you're going to hear him give a job description for elders, and he's going to say, they're folks who rule and teach. That is, exercise authority and teach. And so if you put that together with what he's saying in chapter 3, he's saying, here's the job description of a pastor. It's those who teach and exercise authority. And in chapter 3, he's saying, and that's what I do not permit a woman to do. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man. That is, she is not to teach authoritatively the way that a pastor or elder would do. So what Paul is restricting here is that a woman can serve in any and every way in the church with the exception of the office of elder or pastor because this is an office restricted for men. You haven't thrown anything at me yet, so I'm going to keep going, okay? So you might ask, okay, practically, how does that work out at Seven Mile Road? How can I, a godly woman, serve Jesus, minister to Jesus and his people at Seven Mile Road? And our answer would be, largely in many of the same exact ways that men can, with the singular exception of the office of elder or pastor. Largely in many of the same ways that men can, with the exception of the office of elder or pastor. Okay, some would hear that and go, time out, right? It's 2013. I mean, are you really going to say that this one office is restricted from women? Even just look at how other churches practice. Are you really going to say that women cannot be pastors? And, and so some would argue, listen, when Paul says... I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. What he really means is I do permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And you go, I know I went to a public school in Philadelphia, but that doesn't seem to make sense, right? That doesn't seem to be how the English language works. Some will say, wait, are you trying to suggest that women are not as competent or capable or don't have the same capacity to lead as men? And again, I would say, we wouldn't be saying anything remotely close. Just look around at Seven Mile Road. I've often been amazed that the men in this room ended up with the women that they did in this room, right? Every man here would say, I married way over my head, and thankfully love is blind for a season, and now she's stuck, right? <laughs> this has nothing to do with 
competency or character or capability. It has everything to do with calling. Has God, by design, called men and called women to different things? It, it has everything to do with role and function and design. And in his wisdom, in his good design, he has called us to different things. It's like a dance. I don't know anything about dancing, thankfully. You wouldn't want to see me dance. But what I'm told is both people can't lead. You also can't have neither lead. The only way that it works is for each to fill out their role. And when they do, it can be beautiful. And when they don't, it's chaos. That's, that's the same reality here. Some would say, listen, that may all be true, but what if this was just teaching that was for Ephesus and doesn't have any bearing on us? Maybe this was, after all, we've read through the, the letter of 1 Timothy. We know that church was messed up. We know the women there were loud and obnoxious and proud, and we know those wouldn't be the type of women you'd want to call into eldership. Maybe this passage is just for Ephesus, right? It doesn't culturally apply to us anymore. And that's a good question, because there are other things in the Bible that we don't practice in the same culture. Let, let me give you an example. For example, the scriptures in the New Testament will say, when Christians meet one another, they're to greet each other with a holy kiss. I've been here since 9 o'clock this morning. No one's kissed me, right? But I've had many handshakes and warm hugs and hellos because we know that principle translated into our culture works a different way, right? The scriptures say, wash one another's feet. Four years, no one's washed my feet. And I am not washing any of your feet, right? But the scriptures tell us that. But I do know over these four years, you have served me in a million ways, right? Because we know that that principle applied in our culture works out differently. And so maybe here, this passage in Ephesus and Ephesians in 1 Timothy has to do with that church over there and has no bearing on us. So that's a valid question. Is there anything in this passage that would suggest that this is either in Ephesus or that it has a broader, more universal permanent application and there is it's what comes exactly next it's what Paul says next that gives us the truth here's what he says next for Adam was formed first then Eve and Adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor now I'll explain what he means by that but here's just the question I would ask you to consider does Paul ground his reason for what he's saying in the temporary shifting culture of Ephesus? Or does he root what he's saying in something fixed and permanent like creation? And it's the latter. When Paul is going to give the basis for why he's saying what he's saying, that men and women in the church are going to be equal but different in role and function, he doesn't ground his reason for that exhortation in culture or in Ephesus, he roots it in something way, way, way older than that. He roots it in creation, in the good design of God. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read you through Genesis 1 and 2. Let me quickly tell you what's there. When you go back to Genesis, as Paul does in this passage, and roots his argument in creation, here's what you find. In Genesis 1, God creates the man and the woman, and he creates them equally. 
again, on your own, go back and read Genesis 1, verses 26 and following, and just try and pick out all the different ways in which you see God made the male and the female, and he made them equal. You'll see that he made them both in the image and likeness of God, both of them. So it's not that men reflect God a little bit more or better than women do. No, both are made equally in the image and likeness of God. Both are given dominion over the created order. So it's not men rule over the created world a little bit more. Both are given dominion. Both are blessed by God. So it's not that God loves the men a little bit more. It's that he's equally blessed them both. Both are given this command to fulfill his covenant. All of this is given to both of them. And so you can't get out of Genesis without realizing God made them male and he made them female and he made them equal. But you also can't get out of Genesis without realizing, but he also made them different. God made them male, and he made them female, and he made them equal, but he made them different, and that is very good. I want you to hear that. Their differences was not a result of sin. That doesn't come till later. Their differences was not a result of the fall. You know what? The world is broken, and so we became different in our genders or our roles. Their differences were by design in Genesis 1 and 2. The fall doesn't happen until Genesis 3. And yet in Genesis 1 and 2, their differences and their roles were created by design. And God, if you read back in Genesis, looks at all that he made and he pronounces it good. He looks at the man and woman and says, it's very good. God made them equal, but he made them different. And that is very good. And, and here's what I want you to hear in all of this. These differences rooted in God's design are because we were made in the image and likeness of God. Here's what I'm trying to say. Even your gender is not ultimately about you. It's about God. What, what do I mean? He made us equal and different in the image and likeness of God because that's the only way we could reflect God who is equal and different. You, you see that? We were made equal and different so that we would bear his image and likeness because he is equal and different. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. All three persons are equally God. It's not that the Father is a little bit more God than the Son or the Son is a little bit more God than the Spirit. They're completely equal. God the Father is God as is the Son, as is the Spirit and yet at the same time different because God the Father is not the Son. And God the Son is not the Spirit. That's a heresy. Right? They're equal and different. And in their differences, they even have different standing. So that the Son comes to the earth and says, the Father is greater than I. And says, I do all that the Father tells me to. I don't do anything on my own. I submit to the Father. And yet, it was never in Jesus' mind that that made him somehow inferior or that that was somehow derogatory or that that was somehow lessening his worth or value equal to God. And yet, he embraced the reality of submitting to the Father, that the Father was head over Christ and different even in function so that they don't all do the same thing. The Father was not born in Bethlehem. The Spirit did not die on the cross. God the Father has a different role than God the Son. And God the Son has a different role than God the Holy Spirit. 
And because neither is trying to compete with the other, but all are working in this beautiful harmony, complementing one another, you see the beauty of God. That was the design that men and women were to play, that as we play our different parts, it would reflect the beautiful nature of a God who is that way. As, as the Trinity tries desperately to outdo one another in love, to honor one another and esteem one another, and each plays his part. The Father, because he has had sent the Son, the Son, in obedience to the Father, dies on the cross and rises again. And the Father and the Son has sent the Spirit to live in our hearts. And this beautiful unity in diversity, equal but different, is played out. That's why you were made a man, or that's why you were made a woman. You can chafe all you want at God's design. You can reject it. You can despise it. God made you this way because even your gender exists for God. Your gender is not even about you because none of this is about you. Right? If you have a, a teenager or a child who thinks the whole universe is centered around them, one of the most loving things you can do is show them quickly, look, this all does not exist for you. I know you think you're the center of the universe. This isn't about you. And as much as they'll recoil to that, the sooner they can learn that, the healthier they'll be. And I think God, through this text, wants us to grow up and mature a little bit and say, even your gender does not exist for you. Even that is part of this dance that I've created so that you might reflect something much bigger than yourself. And life and freedom is found in embracing rather than chafing at God's good design. This is what Paul's getting at. This is why Paul says, look, you want to know how this works out? Consider creation. Adam was made first. Again, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through all of that. You go back and you read Genesis and you realize there's some differences about his firstness. There's some differences, right? He was made first. He was told to work and keep the garden. That was a call given by God to him. That those words mean that he's supposed to cultivate and build and protect and defend. This is part of his charge. This is the way God has wired the sons of Adam. So a man has received by design a charge to be a cultivator and a defender and a protector and a provider. In fact, if you go back to Genesis, you see that because he was made first, he is given more responsibility in the garden. God tells him, listen, you can eat all the trees, just not that one. What's interesting is you don't even find that command repeated again to Eve. It's almost as if the text assumes he's told Adam, and now it's Adam's responsibility to instruct his wife on what God has commanded for them. We know he bears primary responsibility also because when they do mess up, even though Eve eats the fruit first, when God comes into the garden, who does he address? He calls out to Adam. Or then later even when the Bible's talking about this whole thing, when Paul writes in Romans 5 and basically lays the blame of all of this at someone's feet, who does he lay that blame at? Adam. He talks about the fall of the one man by which the whole world has been cursed. She ate first, yet he bears primary responsibility because this is by God's design. This is what God created men to do. 
to lead, to bear primary responsibility for that which has been entrusted to them. You go back in Genesis and you read that then she was made. And the text actually says that she was made as a helper for him. And again, don't read 2013 into that. How dare he call her a helper, right? This derogatory, inferior term. God is called our helper in the scriptures. And that's not because he's inferior to us. It's a role he gladly embraces as our helper. And in the same way, she was made to complement him, to help him carry out this call that he otherwise could not do. She was not made to go before him or behind him or above him or beneath him, but alongside him to help him fulfill that all that God had commanded them to do. And if you go back to 1 Timothy, I'll say it quickly. Paul then goes from there to say this in verse 14. Just hear it with me. He says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Here's Paul's point. Paul is simply saying this to say, Look, if you subvert or reject or ignore God's design, everything goes bad. Ephesus, your church is a mess. And listen, if you subvert God's design, everything's going to go bad. And he says, look at the garden. Just consider what happened at the garden. Right? God made Adam first, gave him moral responsibility. When God's enemy, the serpent, comes into the garden, who does he carry on the conversation with? Eve. It's as if the whole thing is being turned upside down and carries on this whole conversation so that she initiates and she leads and he stands by passively doing and saying nothing. And Paul's point is, if you ignore or despise or reject God's design, it will be to great peril. In fact, that's why you even have this weird bit about the childbearing. Now, scholars have debated what that means all the time, but I think a simple understanding is this. He's saying here, if she continues in this way, she will be saved. That doesn't mean, look, you just have to have a baby and you're going to go to heaven, right? You just have to bear a child and you'll be saved. I think what he's getting at is life doesn't work when you reject God's design, but rather life is found in embracing it. And so in a woman embracing her call, even to wife and mother, Rather than chafing at it, rather than rejecting it, she evidences that God is doing something in her heart, that she's submitting to this design of God gladly as evidence that her heart has been changed, that she is being saved. Life is found. The church is healthy when we complement each other well, when we know that God has made us male and female, and he's made us equal, but he's made us different, and that is very good. Here's the last thing I want to say. This is all by God's design so that we can each play our part and God might be gaining much glory. The problem is we've messed the whole thing up. You just have to look in your life. You have to look in the culture to find the sons of Adam do not look far different from their father. Right? The apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. They too are lazy, abdicating, blaming, irresponsible, passive men. That's us. And the women of our day, in our churches, in our lives, in our culture, the apple has not fallen far from the tree. We look much like Mother Eve. The daughters of Eve, rather than receiving an identity that comes from God, listen to the whisper of the serpent. 
look, if you do this, then you can become someone, become like God. You'll get ahead in a man's world not by embracing God's call on your life, but by trying to usurp authority and gain authority. And we have a culture of proud and arrogant and independent rather than interdependent women. We mess the whole thing up. And the good news of the gospel is that the Son of God came for the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve to redeem us and make us sons and daughters of God. Men in this room, hear me. You want to know what it's like to live out what God intended for you? Look to the Son of God. You want to know what leadership looks like? See Jesus with a towel wrapped around his waist, on his knees, washing the feet of the ones he was supposed to lead. That's what leadership looks like. See him serving even unto death so that the ones he was supposed to lead might live. See him come last so they can come first. See him die so that the others can live and you get a picture of what leadership looks like. Jesus was the head of the church and yet he never used that to get his preferences or his way. He used his leadership to lay down his life for the ones who were entrusted to his care. Women in the church, you want to know what it's like or what it looks like to live out what God has called you to do? Look to Jesus. In fact, consider him in the garden the night before he dies. In the same place, a garden where Eve fell, the Son of God comes to redeem Eve. And how does he do it? He doesn't chafe at God's authority. He doesn't usurp God's authority. He doesn't subvert God's authority. Hear the Son of God crying, not my will, but yours be done, and entrusting himself to God. And you get a picture of what a quiet and surrendered and submitted heart looks like. Not derogatory, not inferior, beautiful. It's accomplished our salvation. So if you take all of that and you go back to 1 Timothy, Paul is saying, if we're going to be a healthy church, we need the Son of God to redeem the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve here at Seven Mile Road, that we might become sons and daughters of God who play out our different parts and do so in such a way that we reflect to a watching city and world what God is like as men and women here complement each other well. May the Lord help us to apply this word. Let's pray. Father, in as much as I have said, there is just as much or more that has been left unsaid that your spirit now needs to connect the gaps and connect the dots. Please help us as we go from here seeking to apply and obey your word. I pray that you would be with the men of Seven Mile Road Church. I pray that we would be godly men who look like the son of God more than the sons of Adam, redeemed, that we would lead well and initiate and bear primary responsibility, that we would love and serve in such sacrificial, self-giving, self-dying ways, that it would be the joy of those who are entrusted to our care to follow our lead. Pray for the women at Seven Mile Road, that they would be godly, quiet, surrendered, trusting, faithful women of God as is pleasing to you, that they would see the Son of God equal to the Father, 
gladly submitting and surrendering to his will as a picture of what they might be and see that their gender exists not just for themselves, but like all things is about you and for your glory. Let this be done in such a way that is so countercultural that our city and our world could not help but take notice and by it be drawn to a God who is this way. Forgive all our failures in practical ways now. Help our homes to be healed and by it also our communities and our cities as well. For all of this, we need Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.